Okay, so Zer Shimshun, Parshas Vayeshev, Drush Ches. And uh, what's nice about this week's Parsha, Parshas Vayeshev all the time is, is read right before Hanukkah. So Shabbos preceding Hanukkah, and there is a, uh, there's a source in the Gemara about an unlikely connection of sorts between, here, take two pages, the stack, between, uh, between Hanukkah and the Parsha. So let's see how it goes. So there's a Gemara in Shabbos, Tavchav Beis, the Gemara says two things back to back. Shabbos, Perik Beis, Avchat Beis. Amar of Kahana, Darch, Rav Nasabram, and Yumi Mishmei, Rav Hanukkah. Ner Hanukkah, Shinicha, Lamalamas, Ramama, Psula. We know you have to position the Ner Hanukkah in a way which it should be visible. But not only should it be visible, it should be visible in a, publi- in a public way. Meaning, it's not enough that possibly somebody's going to see it. It should be positioned in a way where it definitely is going to be seen in the regular line of vision by everybody. That's the key. So if it's above 20 amos, the Gemara learns from Sukkah and Mavoy that a person generally in the regular line of vision, a person doesn't look up that high. Therefore, if one position the Narachanukah that high, then it's no good, right? We all know with the Manhattan presents a lot of problems for us. How do we do it? Are we really fulfilling the whole aspect of uh, pursuing Isa for the street? Many of us practically are advised just to put it on our dining room table. We're doing the same thing. All of us is more than 20 amos. Anyways... That's the point of the Gemara, that the main essential point of Pierce of Manes can only bub is above 20 Amos, and you're not fulfilling the mitzvah uh, properly if it's too high. Right after the Gemara says that, the Gemara follows that up with another statement from the very same Amora. So we have the same names. What is the meaning in the Pasuk, this week's Parsha? We have Yosef. Yosef is being thrown into the pit. So let's just clarify the story. I know we're familiar with it, but just go over one important detail. The one important detail is that the brothers want to, want to kill him. They say, let's go and kill him. Reuven comes along and Reuven says, you know, why are you killing him? And he says, instead, let's throw him into a pit. And uh, the Pasuk credits Reuven very much. The Pasuk says that Reuven comes and saves Yosef from their hands. And then the Pasuk even adds, and it was, as we're going to see in a second, was Ruach HaKodesh, where the Pasuk adds that Reuven was thinking that he was trying to save his brother. That's the story. So they throw him into the pit instead. And the purpose of Ruvain's plot to throw him into the pit is ultimately to save him and bring him back to his father. So the Pasuk, when it's describing the pit, what's the meaning of the Pasuk? When the pit is empty, there is no water inside of it. So the question that the Gemara poses is, is already implied in the fact that the Pasuk says that the pit is empty. Empty, clearly I know that there's no water because empty is empty. So if, what is the meaning of the Pasuk when it has to emphasize that there's no water in it? Of course, if it's empty, there's no water in it. Why was the Torah add those extra words that there is no water? So the Gemara explains, that there was no water. We should understand in the story that it was filled with snakes. So a very interesting point. Reuven is saying, Let me, let's not kill him. Why should we kill him? Instead, let's throw him into a pit. But the pit... The Basak identifies as being empty but filled with not, but, but not filled with water. And the implication is that although it's not filled with water, it is filled with other things, namely the snakes and the scorpions. And the question I think that, you know, as, as, as children we know, we're familiar with the Gemara, but the obvious question which strikes us is, what's accomplished by Ruve? In other words, if, if you would say the pit is empty completely and they're just maybe, you know, kidnapping for the moment, not letting him free, we could understand how he's saving him. But if what Reuven is doing is instead of saving him from death, he's throwing him into a pit full of snakes and scorpions, that hardly seems to be a salvation for his brother. How is he saving his brother by, saving, by throwing him into a pit full of snakes? I think that's a pretty familiar question that we have. And we're going to see eventually tonight an answer to that pretty obvious question. But the more troublesome point in the whole story and this whole Gemara is what's the connection between these two things? They're both in the same name of the Amor. 
the earlier commentators have screamed, you know, when they say tzavchu, like it's like, you know, like someone wronged us, you know, we were wronged by the Gemara. The Gemara quotes these two things, one after the other, without any connection. We're talking about these two teachings which are, which are juxtaposed to each other in the Gemara. What does one have to do with the other? Why do we have to know that if an Erechanaka is above 20 Amos, it's no good? And then right after that, I have to know that we learn uh, that there was no water in the pit that they threw Yosef, but in fact, there was Nachashim HaKrafim. What's the point of it? And he says, he brings up the point that we were probably taught. If you're going to suggest, he says, that the point of the juxtaposition is that it was said by the same Amora. In other words, Rav Tanchum was the one who said both teachings. So maybe what's really going on is that there's no connection between the two teachings. But once the Gemara brings in one thing that Rav Tanchum says, so then it follows it up with the second thing that Rav Tanchum said. But essentially, there is no connection between the two statements. That's not a good answer. He refutes that answer because Rav Tamchum has said many different things in the Gemara. These are not the only two things that he has said. So if we're going to start quoting different things, various teachings from Rav Tamchum, so then we'd say a lot more and we could pick other things as well. Only these two things clearly shows Why is the only other thing that we're following up with is the teaching with the lesson of the Habar Rik. So clearly we have to say that there's something which is connected for it. And he spells it out, but... We're trying to figure out what the connection in it is. It must be that he There must be some deeper connection between the, the teaching that the bar was empty but was filled with snakes and scorpions. It must be that it is relevant to the law that we just said about Hanukkah. They have to be dealing with the same subject matter. Not only are they relevant, even stronger, he's going to theorize that we needed to follow up the statement about the Ner being too high with the statement about the fact that the, that the pit was filled up with snakes and scorpions. It, it was like, it, it was a necessary follow-up. That's why in Mesech Shabbos, where the topic at hand was the loss of Hanukkah. If you look at the Gemara in context, that's what we're discussing. It must be that we needed something. There was something missing in the first statement of Rav Tanchum, something bothersome, something that needed the follow-up from the second statement of Rav Tanchum. But that's obviously the perplexing thing is what in the world is going on over here? How do we understand that? So he starts off with a bunch of questions. We'll read through the questions. This is his normal style. He's going to throw about like three, four questions and eventually he'll get to his main theory here. So let's read through the questions. So far, I think all we've asked is what's the connection between the two of Tanakhums? Okay, great. Now, if you would ask, what is the reason why it's no good if the Ner Hanukkah is above 20 Amos? Because we haven't publicized the miracle of Hanukkah. What is the miracle of Hanukkah? What do we mean, Pirsum Haner? Pirsum Hanes, right? We always say that, the publicity of the miracle. If you're in your own words, what is the miracle of Hanukkah? Presumably, the idea is that oil lasted longer than it needed to. That's a difficult thing to, that we should need to publicize. Why the Chachamim feel the need to publicize what happened with the oil to such a great degree. If you think about it, in the greater scheme of what happened in world history, in Jewish history, the, the miracle with the oil is a small matter relative If you compare it in the greater scale, the greater scheme of things, the miracle of the war and the fact that we defeat the Greeks and the fact that we're able to, to, to have a base on Mikdash is so much bigger of a nace and of an important point than it is that oil lasted for eight days. So if we're going to talk about what we should publicize, what we should declare, what we should commemorate, you would think that the commemoration should be much less about the oil and 
and much more about the war. Think about it. Five sons of Matisio are defeating thousands and ten thousands of Greek soldiers. This is the victory that the world should long remember. Will the far sing to show us his barach and to publicize eternally what Hakadosh Baruch Hu has saved us? And he and he and he bolsters his point. He says the miracle that oil lasts. No one's denying that it's a great miracle that oil lasts. But the bottom line is that happened many times. So look, I'm Elisha. Think about Elisha. Elisha the Navi. We read in the Haftar for Parshas Vayera. It was a miracle that he had. There was a woman who was poor, the Isha Ashunamis, and he's able to make oil just flow and flow, and they don't have enough vessels to contain all the vo- all of the uh, all of the proportions of oil which are flowing. She was the wife of Avadia. But bottom line is, is that there are so many miracles that happens when it, when oil flows beyond its its its, its natural means. And we barely remember commemorated. Who talks about Aisha's Elisha? Who even knows? Who even knows who this woman was? Right? Who even knows the basic story? It's a long, a little. It's a little detail. You can look it up in the Navi. You'll see it. You know, it's not something that we're busy publicizing. So you think about Hanukkah and why? Because it's a, it's a detail. It's, it's, it's a story that related to one or two people. It doesn't define us as a people. So if you're talking about Hanukkah and you want to understand why it's on the Jewish calendar, it's not on the Jewish calendar because the little oil stayed lit longer. That's a small point. The bigger point is what we did on, and we achieved on the battlefield and the way we defeated the Greek army. That's the main point. So what is this point of publicizing the small miracle when we really are overlooking the bigger miracle? That's another, it's a pretty famous question, but... The way which he poses it is something, there's something beautiful about the way that he, he points it. But the better, just the simple question, which you know, you definitely will hear this around of the week of Hanukkah, is that it seems odd that the entire commemoration is on this relatively small miracle of oil staying lit, and we seem to neglect the bigger picture of how much we achieved in defeating the army. Third question. Now he goes back to the story of this week's Pasha. Ruven saves him, saves Yosef. What in the world is the Pasuk saying when it says Ruven saves Yosef? What kind of salvation is that when you take your brother and you throw him into a pit full of snakes? How can that be defined as an act of salvation? In what way is that saving him? If he's, if he's insisting on throwing him into a pit which is filled with snakes, obviously the expectation is that he's going to die. How could the Torah write those words? And he saved him. He didn't save him. He's in the middle of a great danger. So meaning to say, ultimately, yes, it's true. Yosef didn't die. We see God protected him. But in the middle of the narrative, and this is what he's picking up on, you have to read the Pasuk in its place. In its place, in the middle of the narrative, the Pasuk seems to be defining Reuven in that moment had already rescued him. He already rescued him. He saved him. He didn't save him. In the future, when it turns out that God saved him from the predicament of being in the snakes and scorpions, it emerged that Reuven played a hand in achieving that, played a role in making that happen. But in the moment, that wasn't an act of salvation from it, from, from, from the danger. You take him out of the danger from the brothers and you throw him into a second danger. Why is that an act of salvation? That is question number three. Strong point. And then the next paragraph, I think we can... Uh, we, we can skip because he goes into a theory. The next, actually, two paragraphs. So turn your page to Va'od. Let's get to this, to this fourth question. Va'od, furthermore. Another penetrating, very simple question. After the brothers see, they throw him into a pit filled with snakes. What do they still see? They get so stubborn. They say, no, he's still bad. We have to sell him. We have to get rid of him. How could they be so brazen to deny Yosef Tzitkus after you throw somebody? It's like the most greatest miracle of all time. You throw somebody into a pit of snakes and he walks out unharmed. 
and you still have the audacity to sell him after that? After they see the snakes didn't harm him, isn't that clearly proving that God is on his side? That's the whole thing. The Shvatim thought Yosef was a Russia. He was wicked. He was the insidious enemy. So that's why they thought they had to kill him. But at that point, has Yosef not proven himself? Before they threw him in the pit, maybe Yosef was full of the slander and creating politics and making uh, all the fights. So maybe they, they had to distance him. Clearly Hashem is on, uh, is on, is on Yosef's side. The master is on his side. That's a euphemism of saying HaKadosh Baruch Hu is protecting him. So if you throw a guy into a pit of snakes and he doesn't die, you're not going to be so bold to go throw him, to go, to go sell him and try to get rid of him. Yeah, you go say, I'm so sorry, I made a bad mistake. You're really a tzaddik. How could the brothers not realize their mistake at the end of that point? And finally, we get to the fifth question. And to understand the fifth question, we have to just know what Rashi says. Afterwards, when Ruvain says, Ruvain says, you know, I want to throw him in the pit. And it says in the Pasuk, Ruvain saves him. The Pasuk finishes off that Ruvain, when he did this, was intending to rescue him so that he could return him to his father. That's what the Pasuk says. It makes a point of saying that Ruvain's intention was to bring him back to his father. And Rashi, they're right, basically, that there was a Ruach HaKodesh that had to say that. Meaning we wouldn't really know what Ruvain's intent was. And the Ruach HaKodesh stuck into the Torah, put into the narrative that you should know what Ruvain was really trying to do was to bring him back to the father. For Ode, what's difficult about that is, why do you need the Pasuk to interject that? As if someone could have misunderstood what Ruvain did in a different way, and the Pasuk has to emphasize, no, he's doing it to bring it back to his father. We needed to say about Ruvain that he only did this to bring it back to his father. Rashi, as Rashi brings, what does that mean? Clearly, Ruvain was trying was trying to say it. And the fact that the Ruach HaKodesh did have to say it, it sounds like someone could have understood it in a different way. Someone could have understood what Ruvain did not as an attempt to get Yosef safe and back to his father. Someone could have understood that Reuven was trying to do something else. The Pasuk had to say, no, that's not the MS. The MS is that he was trying to bring him back to his father. How else could someone have looked at it? If the Pasuk with Ruach HaKodesh has to inject into the narrative and tell you what Reuven is clearly thinking, there must be a different way that someone can analyze the story and misunderstand what Reuven is doing. My Svarazu, what other difficulty could there, what other possibility could Reuven have been trying to do if not save Yosef? So let's summarize where we are. We have finished the questions, okay? We have five penetrating questions here. We have two teachings of Rav Tanchum. Ner above 20 Amas was no good. Second teaching of Rav Tanchum. The pit was empty of water, but it was filled with snakes and scorpions. We don't understand how those two teachings relate to one another. That's question number two. Question number two is when we look at the, of the miracle of Hanukkah, why are we so busy commemorating the relatively small miracle of the oil and neglecting the greater miracle on the battlefield? Question number three, why is the Pasuk saying that Ruvain saved Yosef in the moment when he's actually throwing him into a pit of snakes? Question number four, why would the brothers sell Yosef after they see that he's clearly a tzaddik if he does not killed by the snakes? And question number five, what would the reader have thought was, motiva- was motivating Ruvain if not for trying to save Yosef? Why would the Torah have to go out of its way to emphasize, you should know when Ruvain did that, he was trying to save Yosef. What else could someone have possibly said? Those are the five really great questions. And the way that if you go back at the end in a couple, you know, 20 minutes and try to see how he answered all the questions, that's where the brilliance is. You just, these questions are all over the place. Five different questions, five different points, five different, different, different texts, five different, just like analysis, great questions. We're going to see, it's got this huge theory that's going to go on, a difficult one, I got to tell you, it's not, it's not from the easiest of what he says, but I think the sheer brilliance and creativity here is, is it really shines forth. 
So let's see. V'nirel atar tarishon rishon. He says, let's go slow here. Let's 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 go slow. Let's go loud loud. First, little by little. Let's let's talk, first talk about what is the symbolism of the Hanukkah lights and what are they really trying to show us. The idea that we publicize the miracle of the oil. He says the truth is we're actually not trying to commemorate the fact that the oil, just the fact that the oil stayed lit for eight days. That's actually not the key of what the miracle is. You're right. That's a relatively small point in the overall scheme. Really what it's alluding to is a greater salvation, which the Jewish people experience. Why is a light a reference to the Jewish people's salvation? What does that mean? We have to understand that darkness, the Pasuk says when the world was created, there was darkness on the, on the surface of the deep, right? What does that mean? There was no light in the world. There was darkness on the surface of the deep. So the Medrash tells us that that's the Greek empire. The Greek empire is referred to as a darkness in the world. And in what sense is Greece considered the darkness of the world? Because what the Greece did is they darkened literally the eyes of the Jewish people with their decrees. We have to understand that Greece was not only a fight geographically for the conquest of Israel. It wasn't only a fight even on religion practice. It was a fight against spirituality. And we're going to see spirituality is defined as light, and the fight against that spirituality is considered the darkness. The Greeks wanted to approve from the Jewish people the main essential mitzvahs. Shabbos, Rosh Chodesh, Humila. So this is all, it's very interesting. It's actually only in Megillus Antiochus that we learn that. The Medrash doesn't even tell us that. Those are the things I think we all, you know, as children, we teach we teach the kids that that the Greeks wanted to uproot Shabbos, Rosh Chodesh, and Brismila, but the truth is it's not even in the Medrash. The Medrash does, just says that Greece was darkness, and it really takes the Megillus Antiochus to learn that point. But here, the, 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 the Zerah Shimshon throws it together. For Ode, what is told us, this actually as a Midrash, how you wrote some Sheikh al Karan Ashar, the Greeks told the people, anyone who owns an ox, there was a, like an edict in Greece that they said as follows. Anyone who owns an ox has to take its horn and write on the horn, that they, they give up in God. They have to write that on the horn of the ox. Very famous idea, by the way, just to know this, it's good for Hanukkah. Why do you have to write that on a horn of an ox? I mean, you write that on anything. Write that on the wall. Write that on a piece of paper. What's the horn of the ox? So if you research, it's a crazy thing. But if you research this, do a little quick Google, you'll see that the, the original baby bottles were actually horns. Very common, that's what they were. They would have like some sort of horn and they used to put like a flask in it. And out of the narrow end, the baby could like, could, uh, could, could, could suck and get a little bit of the liquid out. So the idea is that what the Greeks were really good at is, is, is going for the, the youth. And that's always what they, you know, the way you can win. It's very tough to go against people who have been practicing, you know, for years and years and say, okay, give up Judaism. But what the Greeks did is that they went for the Kisval Karen Ashar, which means that they were trying to influence the next generation. And that was where the real, the real danger was. At any rate, after all is said and done, the Greeks were not only a, a, a physical threat, but the Greeks were, was a darkness. They were trying to make sure we had no light, meaning no spirituality. That's why there's symbolism of light within darkness in Hanukkah, not just because the oil stayed lit for all days. That's small. You're right that that's small. But we're commemorating when we light. What we light was that we're commemorating that we have the ability to infuse darkness with a little bit of light. The concept is that we still have light. Even though Yavan came with so much darkness pushing back against spirituality, we were able to light and maintain it. That's obviously the reason why then that miracle occurred within the oil. We wanted to have an allusion to the bigger point. The bigger point is, is that our darkness was no longer there. We have the ability to light. So obviously it's cool that, that, that oil stays lit for eight days, but that, that's the illusion. That's not the point. The point is 
that with Hashem made that type of nays to show us our triumph of the endurance of light. That's the key. The fact that light was never extinguished. The point is, did we really need that in the base of Mikdash? We really needed the oil to stay lit? No. It answers many questions, his theory. Many hard questions about Hanukkah. The point is, the symbolism in the light is that darkness did not triumph. Greek, although they were trying to tell us not to do the mitzvahs, we were still able to do it. That's why it's got to be publicized. In the sense, it's the core and essential part. The salvation from the Greeks. In other words, the point is, Hashem made a minor miracle. Why did he make the minor miracle? To commemorate the greater miracle, which was our emergence from darkness to light. So when you light the Hanukkah Nairs and you want to show the world that we have light, what are you trying to show the world? That you should know God made my oil stay lit longer than it should? No. That's what God did so that you'll go commemorate and show the world that you can still be spiritual. No matter how much darkness is in the world, we always have the ability to endure within the light of Hanukkah. That itself is a beautiful idea, by the way. You just put that in your pocket for Hanukkah. It's worth it just to know that. We're not really, so it comes out a really interesting thing. It's, there, there's the actual miracle, but that's not really the point of it. The point isn't that the oil stays lit. The point is Hashem did the minor miracle so that it triggers in us a commemoration of the bigger idea. The bigger idea is that we are able always to have light. We are always able to endure with Torah and mitzvah symbolized in the light and the darkness of Choshech is not able to extinguish that light. Great. But now he asks a strong <laughs> question. And this next question is where it all opens. It's a bold question. It's not a question that I think we naturally would ask. But he goes for it. It is difficult. Do we really owe God anything for that? Do we have to thank Hashem for making sure that darkness does not overwhelm us? Is that something that we have to thank God for? Does God, is it not on God to make sure that we can have light? Even though we are obligated to go down into the pit of exile. Avram Vino actually chose that for us. He's coming off of a medrash. When we call Yisrael sin, comes to Avram and he says, what should we do to your children? Throw them in Gehenim or throw them to exile? And Avram says, throw them to exile. So we have to have exile. We have to have challenges the way we have it. Fine. But we still have to understand that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has to give us a chance. And if he throws us into a darkness that would extinguish our light, then what does he want from us? Like, what kind of Judaism is that? Is there, is there a possibility? Like, before Hashem saved us from the Greeks, was there actually, I know this is a very basic, bold, almost like brazen question that sounds like borderline up It's very quick, it's close. But is it really a miracle that we have to thank Hashem, the fact that the Greeks didn't overwhelm us with their darkness? God cannot let that happen. Like, he promised Avram, I'm, I'm going to have your kids, and I have their issues, they sin, and therefore they're going to be punished, and there's a punishment, but he can't wipe out Judaism. That he's not, that's not the goal here. So if he would throw us in gullus and throw us into darkness that is so overwhelming that we can't practice anything, then that's just, that's just not fair. That, 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 that's against what he owes us. He's not trying to do that to us. So of course God cannot allow that to occur. So if Hashem does not allow the darkness to overwhelm us, and he makes sure that we're able to practice what we want as Jews, that we owe Hashem a debt of gratitude to that, we have to thank Hashem for not for making sure that we're able to be Jews. Of course, that's the whole point of why we're in Gullis, that we're Jews and we're still, we still have an opportunity. It might not be easy, but we have an opportunity. If Hashem throws us into a place where you have no opportunity, so then what is that? So he goes on with very strong questions. He says, Hashem should have made us, put us in an exile and give us a nation that doesn't force us to violate the Torah. This is what the, the Shach writes in the beginning of Parsha Shmos. 
that that time Shabbat calls The reason why we went to Egypt is because Shalemir Dasam. We wouldn't change our religions because the Jew the, the Jews would never mix with the Egyptians. The Egyptians hate us. They, we were like bad to them. They had no interest in us. The Jewish people were loathsome to the Egyptians. They refused to even break bread with us. So the point is that God is doing that intentionally to make sure that we can be stay Jewish. It's not easy in Mitzrayim. It's not fun, but at least we can be Jewish. He says in many different things, but he brings one idea from the Gemara Gittin. Either God, either you protect us, whether we stay in your shade, or we stay in the shade from the descendants of Esau. Meaning to say that Rome, as evil as they are, and as bad as they were, but they, they give us dignity. They respect the Jewish people. At the end of the day, we're able to function under the civilization of, of Rome, and we, we survive. And that's what our, our desire is. If we're going to be in a Gaulus, let us be in a Gaulus where we can survive. And we come at that. That's not like something we owe to Hashem. That's basic. Hashem owes that to us. That's not us thanking Hashem for not making us extinguishing Gaulus. That's like Pashit. What? That's the concept of Gaulus. As a Jew, we're being sent to practice our Judaism despite the fact that we're in Gaulus. So if so, think about it. If Hashem would throw us into a Greek oppression where we can't practice any mitzvahs, you know what that would be like? It would be like a case where somebody takes his friend and he drowns him in water. So I don't let his head get out of the water. Are you a murderer if you do that? Or do I say, no, I'm not a murderer. I just held you under the water and the water killed you. What's the truth in that? Of course, you're a murderer. That's a Gemara in Sanhedrin. If you hold him and you don't let him escape, you're liable to execution. Because if I'm putting you into something where you can't get out and you're stuck under the water, so then that's tantamount to an act of murder. You can't get out of that. And we know we can't get out of it. There's actually a vow. It's a case, which means that when the Jewish people are thrown into exile, we have to accept that we're in the exile. We're not even allowed to fight and claw our way back and bring the Messiah before Hashem said. So it's, we literally are drowning in a water that we can't escape from. God says, go to Gullahs and don't get out. So if he puts us in a Gullahs where we're drowning and we're not allowed to get out, so then God's just killing us. That's the point of Gullahs, go kill the Jews. We don't owe God any ounce of debt of gratitude, anything for not putting us in such a, in such a scenario. When Hashem puts us into the cursed Greeks, they're putting us literally, you know, in, in waters that are surging over our souls, meaning spiritually, Hashem is putting us into that drowning waters. We're drowning in these anti-religious decrees that are being placed on us by Yavon. What could we have done? Let's say they would not have let us do anything. What, what could we do? If there would be in a, in a, such a law that we can't practice Shabbos, Rosh Chodesh, or anything, so what would happen? You're not even supposed to practice it, right? You don't even give up your life for those sins. So there just wouldn't be Shabbos, right? So imagine God didn't save us from Yavin. But God did not save us. He said, no, the Jewish people's army cannot fight, cannot fight Greece and let the strongest man win. Then what would have happened? Shabbos would cease to be. If Shabbos would cease to be, would we be here today? Absolutely not. We wouldn't be here today as Jews. We all agree. So what in the world would that be? So God would have put us into a scenario that we have no chance. And the right thing for us to be in that moment would be that we wouldn't practice Shabbos because you don't give up your life. You don't die. And now what? So then we would just, Judaism would cease. So I owe God a debt of gratitude for saving me? Of course that's what was supposed to happen. That's not the point. He's not trying to kill Judaism. It's a fascinating question to ask. A very honest question. Not an easy question. But he goes there. 
So it's God's obligation. He can't subjugate us under control of such a wicked nation. We look at it like he was obligated to do so. What kind of significance is that miracle? Why do I express like this gratitude overwhelmingly for Hanukkah when it was simply incumbent upon God to do that? So he says, the Territ is, we have to explain. Even if God gave us over to the Greeks, he was not obligated to save us. If he did, we have to thank him. Why? The idea, we have a claim against God that he held us underwater. The truth is, it's not MS. Why? The, the Navi Yirmiya told us, that when we're in a gullus, it's not like we're being held underwater. Rock, Nikru, Nechashen. The Pasuk refers to exile as snakes. Look at the Pasuk in Yirmiya. It's as if God is throwing us into a pit of snakes. Look at the Pasuk. I'm going to incite against you a serpent that is venomous. They are going to bite you. The Pasuk in Yirmiya describes the Gullus as a God inciting a snake to come and attack us. They are like a snake. Similarly, David says about his enemies. They are venom like the venom of a snake. So what is the difference between someone who, someone who holds his friend underwater? He is a murderer. What about the following scenario? This is where it gets juicy. What happens if someone incites a snake against his friend? So you know how to incite a snake. You inc- Ruvain incites a snake to go kill Shimon and the snake killed Shimon. What is the law? Is Ruvain a murderer or not? We've already established if Ruvain holds Shimon under the water where he cannot breathe, Ruvain is a murderer. What if Ruvain incites a snake to go bite Shimon? He kills him. Is Reuven a murderer? Parak that says Sanhedrin Amrina and Chazal say in the Gemara in Sanhedrin that what is the law? If he held him under the water, Chayev, he's a murderer. If he caused the snake to bite him, Rabbi Yehuda Yehuda says that's an act of murder. and say he's not liable. What's Pshad in the Chacham and what's Pshad in Rabbi Yehuda? The Gemara explains as follows. According to Rabbi Yehuda, Eris Nachash Pinchin of Huomid, the poison of his, of his of the snake is between its fangs, meaning as it's like an immediate immediate reaction. This, the venom is right there on the surface of the fangs of the of the snake. So as soon as you incite the snake, it's as if you're directly shooting the venom into your friend, and therefore you're a murderer. But the Chacham say no. The poison is deep inside, and it's the snake's volition which brings the venom out. Meaning, if I incite it, what I'm causing is I'm causing an indirect, a grama, a causative thing for the snake to make venom come out. I'm not like it's shooting the venom. The venom is deep inside the snake. The snake has to, as if like, throw out the venom from deep inside. Therefore, what it is, if I incite the snake, what is going on is I'm only causing the death. I'm not committing an act of murder. It's a big difference. If I drown him under the water and he dies, in the case of the snake, it's only causative because if the snake doesn't want to do it, then it doesn't matter. You can incite the snake from today till tomorrow, but it's the snake's volition. It's the snake's decision if it wants to, if it wants to shoot that venom. So therefore, even if he, the murderer takes the snake, and he brings the snake's mouth to the hand of his friend, right? And the fangs are piercing him. If it bites him, and he dies, 
potter. We're going to say he's potter. Why? Because without the snake's intent, without its desire to shoot the venom, the person wouldn't die. It won't shoot the poison. The Rabbi Huda holds different. Rabbi Huda holds that it doesn't take the snake's intent. The snake is right there by the fangs. If I put the fangs on the hand, it automatically the snake comes. At, the snake's venom comes out. So you can directly kill using the snake. But the Rabbanon hold it's not like that. The venom is deep inside, so it takes the snake's intent, the the volition of the snake to shoot its poison. Yeah. Isn't yeah, hundred percent. But in terms of establishing whether, now it's not a question of whether it will happen. It's a question of something else. It's a question of who's doing it. Is it me or is it the snake? I am inciting the snake to act on its intent, but it's ultimately the snake's intent which is doing it. But it's causing. If it's more, if you own the snake, then you would be you would be high. You're high for damages, but you're not a murderer. Okay, fine. That's the key. You have to watch your snake. If I own a snake, like you're quoting in the Mishnah, Mu'ad Lola, you better watch whatever your animal does. You're, you have to pay damages. But in the laws of murder, it's only when you do a direct action when you kill, not cause it. If so, now let's get this right. Now let's understand. When God placed us in the hands of the nations, in it's not really compared to someone holding us under the water. It's not true. It's not an act of murder. Really, it's compared to someone who causes a snake to bite. It's an indirect murder. Which means, basically, Hashem is not making the nations do something. The, the evil decrees of the nations is not on the surface. They decide what they want to do. It's therefore, it's just like someone who causes a snake to bite and therefore God would not be held accountable. God really is not obligated to save us. If Hashem does save us, then it means that we owe Hashem the debt of gratitude. So that's the analysis. The analysis is, why do we owe Hashem? We owe Hashem because gullus, even if it seems like there's no option, it's not that God is caught making that. God is just inciting the snake. The snake's intent, it is the gullion who are making that decree. And it's their intent, their decision to place that upon us. It's not that God is putting us under water where we, we are drowning. God is inciting a snake. This snake is then coming with its eres and it's shooting it. Okay. Now, what does that have to do with us? So far that it's explained the idea of why Hanukkah. It is so important by Hanukkah that we thank Hashem for taking away the decrees. And we ask the question, you know, God has to. We've explained no. Really, God is only considered a goyrim. He's a cause. He's not an act of murder. It's really the intent of the snake, the intent of the gullus, the intent of the goyim. Therefore, technically, God would be off the hook. And that's why we have, we have, to, we have to thank him for the fact that we are saved. So now, let's get into this. So first of all, that's why we have to publicize the miracle. Hanukkah light above 20. Amos is no good. People don't see Lake of Pirates We're not publicizing the miracle. We have to publicize. We have to show it. But now, someone's going to say, that's all true if the halacha is like a chamin. But if the halacha is like Rabbi Yehuda, then it's not true. I'm going a little bit quickly because I want to get through all the points. So if, if the halacha is like Rabbi Yehuda, this whole thing doesn't work. This whole cheshbin that you better commemorate Hanukkah, put it up, make sure everybody sees it, to publicize that we have to thank Hashem that's only true within the opinion of the chachamim. Because it's not that God would have been a murderer. He's just inciting the snake. If you go like Rabbi Yehuda, it's not true. So wait a second. Maybe really the halacha is like Rabbi Yehuda. What's our proof that the halacha is like the chachamim? How do we really, really, really know that that's the answer? So take a look here at, turn your page to Samach Aleph, very back, Mishum Hachi, Hevi Ahida That's why the Gemara follows it up with the second Gemara. Here we go. He, Ruvain saw his brothers were about to commit a murder. Let's, now everything will go beautifully. Ruvain sees his brothers are about to commit an act of murder. Take a knife and stab him, right? Says Ruvain, no, don't do that. Throw him in the pit. What, what's in the pit? Snakes. So what was the kasha? It says Ruvain saved him. 
How did Reuven save? He didn't save. Reuven, the guy's going to die. He's going to die from the snakes. Therefore, the Gemara brings the Pasuk with empty, and it tells us that there were snakes. When the Torah is still saying that he rescued him. What does it mean he rescued him? The Torah is showing us that the Allah is like the Rabbanon. That if someone causes a snake to kill somebody else, he's not a murderer. If Allah would be like Rabbi Yudah, he's not saving him. There were snakes there. Says the Pasuk, Now listen, he didn't save Yosef objectively. He saved Yosef, listen to the words, from their hands. What does he mean he saved him from their hands? He saved Yosef from being murdered by the brothers. He didn't want the Shvatim to be responsible for his death. Reuven said, throw him in the pit and let the snakes kill him. Because if you throw him in the pit and the snakes kill him, you're not a murderer. You accomplished that Yosef's dead and you didn't have to murder your potter. That was the brilliance of what Reuven was doing. The Pasuk's not saying, and Reuven saved Yosef. doesn't say that. doesn't say he made sure that Yosef was safe. It says he saves Yosef from their hands. He saves the Shvatim from murdering Yosef because by throwing them in the pit, they are not going to be murderers. If you throw it into a pit of snakes, you incite the snake to bite him, you are not committing an act of murder. He saves Yosef from their hands of murder. The Pasuk is Mamish saying like the Chachamim. Now it's very good. If the, as we in since the halach is like the chachamim, and Hakadosh Baruch Hu sends us into the gullus, and therefore he really would be putter if the goyim are oppressive to us. So if Hashem saves us, we owe a debt of gratitude. You better publicize it, put the menorah where everybody can see. Ah, you're gonna say maybe if Hashem incites a snake, he's really high because halach is like Rabbi Yudah? No, you see in the pasuk that the halach is like the chachamim because Reuven was considered he saved them from the hands of the shvatim by throwing him into a pit of snakes. He saved them from committing the murder. So now, now we can understand. So right here, the Pasuk has to say, so what was Ruvain thinking? Someone could stop right there and say, yeah, that's Pshat. You know why Ruvain said, throw him, into the, throw him into the pit of snakes? He wasn't trying to save Yosef. He wanted Yosef dead. He just wanted to make sure that we didn't commit an act of murder. Zok the Torah with the narrative with Ruach HaKadosh. No, 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 no. You should know that the MS was, Ruvain happened to know that Yosef was a tzaddik and his true intent was to get Yosef back home. But if the Torah wouldn't say that, you wouldn't have thought that's what Ruvain was doing. If the Torah wouldn't say that, you would say Ruvain was just trying to make sure that they didn't make the murder directly, that they did it indirectly. So if the Torah know that Ruvain really, Lamana Emes, knew that the snakes weren't going to get him. And that's why he was trying to do it to make sure he got back home. But without that, somebody could have had a completely different analysis there, right? All he was trying to do was make sure that the Shvatim wouldn't commit the act of murder directly. Now, let's continue. I'm just going to say it outside because we only have a minute. So the Shvatim see that the snake didn't bite him. So we said, it's a palace. You see Yosef Satzadik. What, what were they thinking? They missed the boat in the following way. They thought the halacha was like Rabbi Yehuda. That if you throw a snowman to a snake and the snake bites him, you're a murderer. And they said to themselves, you know why Yosef didn't die? Because Hashem was trying to protect us from making an act of murder. He didn't want us to be, have blood on our hands. He wasn't trying to save Yosef, he was trying to save us. Because they thought that Allah was like Rabbi Yehuda. And they would be murderers, it would be the same murder. And that dawned upon them, he said, That's, God has our back, that we shouldn't be murderers. That's what they thought. 
So it's an Imamish, an amazing thing. Really, the Emes was, like the Chachamim, Ruvain saved them from an act of murder by throwing them into the pit. Ruvain grabbed and knew Yosef wasn't going to be bought, he was going to bring them back to his father, and he was really saving him, Lamana Emes. The Shvatim missed it. They thought the Allah was like Rabbi Yehuda when he threw him into the pit, what's going to happen? He's going to be, they're going to be active murderers. So Hashem prevented them from happening. And that's why they still thought that they should go kill Yosef. After that, they should go sell Yosef and get rid of him, just not through an act of murder. After all is said and done, you go back through the five questions, you'll see how every single question was answered. But the main thing, the main takeaway is the concept of, 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 of Hanukkah is that Hashem threw us to Gullahs. He's throwing us to snakes. He's not drowning us. Throwing someone to snake is a grumma. It is a cause. It's an indirect thing when the snake goes and buys it. That's why HaKadosh Baruch Hu doesn't owe us anything. He plays, ultimately would be the Goyim who extinguished Judaism, not God who extinguished Judaism. That's why we owe it to Hashem, a debt of gratitude to thank Him for the Hatzalah of Hanukkah. That's why we have to be Mepharsim in the oil to see, no, we're so lucky that we still have light. Because of that, the Gemara said, someone's going to die. No, who said? Maybe throwing someone to a snake is exactly like killing him. Who says it's considered a grandma? After them bring the Gemara, the Pasuk, with Reuven, that he threw them to the pit. He saved them from the hands of murder. We see from there that the halacha is like the Chacham. Mamish, that the whole stickle answers, but at the same time, we didn't see that they, they thought the halacha was like Rabbi Yehuda, so they were not moved. Yeah. <clears throat>